Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. West Germany was experiencing seasonally cool autumn weather in October 1984. It would only be another four years before the fall of the Berlin Wall, but for anyone living at the time, this was still as inconceivable as a future of social media or New York without the Twin Towers. On those many grey and gloomy days that signalled the approach of winter that year, for citizens of both East and West Germany, the Cold War was very much in operation. In West Germany, this could be seen most starkly in the numerous acts of domestic terror that were perpetrated there in the decade leading up to the Berlin Wall's demise. At the forefront of this activity was the Red Army faction, also known as the Baden-Meinhof Gang, named after two of the group's early leaders, Andreas Bader and Ulrike Meinhof. The faction was formed out of radical elements from the 1960s German university protest movement as a reaction to the post-war political landscape. Chief among their concerns was the failure of the West German political system to completely expunge itself of former supporters of Adolf Hitler and what they viewed as the ever-expanding and unchecked imperialist approach of the United States government. Using funds gained from bank robberies, the group engaged in numerous violent activities focused mainly on West German corporations and the people who worked for them, as well as US military installations and personnel killing 30 people in the process. Meanwhile, in East Germany, it was the machinations of the uber-vigilant Ministry of State Security, also known as the Stasi, who perhaps most struck fear into its citizens with its ceaseless and brutal efforts to sniff out any opposition to the country's ostensibly communist government. All in all, 
It was a dark and unsettling time for citizens of both Germanys, framed by an ever-present atmosphere of violence and paranoia. And it was in the shadow of all that that one morning in October 1984, in Anshausen, a small town about 35 miles east of Bonn in West Germany, 34-year-old Gunther Stoll was stood in front of his bathroom mirror, contemplating the face that was staring back at him. What he saw was dark hair swept to one side to conceal his slightly receding hairline, a broad, dark moustache under heavy eyebrows, and a dark goatee beard. Unbeknownst to him, this very face was shortly to become the subject of one of the strangest and most cryptic unexplained deaths in recent German history. You're listening to Unexplained, and I'm Richard McLean Smith. By the time late October had arrived, Gunther Stoll had been unemployed for several months, and with the autumn nights drawing in fast, it was a difficult time to be out of work. In fact, the situation had been getting to Stoll a little more than he'd care to admit. His hands had developed a slight tremble, and he couldn't seem to focus on any sort of routine. As the days rolled by, and Stoll's attempts to find a job went nowhere, he seemed only to become more and more anxious. Stoll had worked as a food engineer at a local factory before losing his job a few months earlier. It was a specialist profession, and openings for someone with his particular skills were thin on the ground. As such, Stoll's wife was well aware that her husband was unlikely to find work straight away but she'd become alarmed at just how much of an effect it was having on him, as he became increasingly agitated and unusually nervous. She wondered if perhaps all the TV he was consuming, now he didn't have a regular day job to go to, with its endless reports of domestic terror, kidnappings and killings, was beginning to weigh on his mind. But it was more than that, Stoll, it seemed, was becoming paranoid. Every now and then, his wife would catch him glancing furtively out of the window. Other times, she'd hear him muttering to himself from outside a room, only for him to stop the moment she walked in. Whenever he went out, she watched on quietly from the window as he pulled up the collar of his coat then quickly scanned all around him before getting into his pale-coloured Volkswagen Golf. And when he drove off, he would do so slumped down low in the driving seat, as if trying to avoid being seen. Then Stoll's paranoia seemed to take a turn for the worse. It started one evening over dinner, when Gunther's wife asked him why exactly he'd been peering out into the street that day from behind the curtains. It was, he said simply, because of them. When she asked who they were, Stoll went silent for a moment, 
refusing to answer the question, until finally he spoke again. They, he said, were on his trail. It was a few evenings later when Gunther's wife found him in their bedroom, pacing up and down. She asked him once more to explain what was wrong, but again, Stahl offered only that they were planning to do something to him. A few days later, and he had become convinced that they were in fact out to kill him. For Stoll's wife, it was becoming unbearable. Not convinced that there really was a they at all, she was left with the sad realisation that her husband was most likely struggling with a severe psychiatric illness for which she was not equipped to deal with. On Thursday, October 25th, Stoll was once again at home where he'd been all day, barely able to sit still. By late evening, he was sat in an armchair in his bedroom, still muttering to himself, when his wife joined him. The pair spoke for a moment before Stoll went back to his now usual nervous worrying. It was shortly before 11pm when he suddenly leapt to his feet and shouted, Jetzt get mir ein Licht auf. Its literal translation to English would be something like, now a light comes on, but perhaps, now I've got it, is a better reflection of its meaning. Stoll's wife could only watch on with alarm as her husband took a sheet of scrap paper, sat down at the bedroom dressing table, and proceeded to scribble something on it. When he'd finished, there appeared to be six characters written down on the paper, The first two seemed to be the capital letters Y and O, followed by a third letter which looked like a capital G but could also have been a six, followed by an apostrophe, then three more letters, T, Z and E, also in capitals. Together, if it was indeed a G and not a six, they spelled the apparently nonsensical word Yogsi. Stoll's wife looked on as Gunther stared hard at the cryptic characters for a moment before proceeding to cross them out one by one. Then he leapt up once more, dashed out of the room and tore off down the stairs. Where are you going so late? shouted his wife after him as Stoll grabbed his coat and keys. Just to the pub for a drink, he replied, before swiftly opening the door and rushing out into the street. Mrs. Stoll watched on from the bedroom window as Gunther backed his car down the driveway, turned onto the road, and was swallowed up by the night. It was the last time she would see her husband alive. Later that night, Stoll was witnessed at his favourite pub in neighbouring Wilnsdorf, a former iron mining town, about three and a half miles south of Anshausen. It was a quiet Thursday evening in the Wilnsdorf bar, 
A few regulars chatted quietly and sipped their drinks. Ordinarily, they would barely pay attention to Stoll, other than to nod a brief greeting. He was a regular there, who tended to keep himself to himself. Except that night, there was something undeniably odd about him, which drew many concerned gazes from his fellow drinkers. Just as he had been at home for a good few weeks now, he seemed restless, agitated and preoccupied. The one thing he wasn't, however, according to all who saw him there that night, was drunk. Stoll did order a beer, which the bartender poured for him, but before he could take a sip, without any warning, he collapsed to the ground, hitting and injuring his face as he fell, having seemingly lost consciousness. The customers and the bartender helped him to his feet and suggested he rest a moment while they fetched the first aid kit to tend to the deep gash on his face. But Stoll adamantly refused all help. Instead, he simply paid for his drink and left before climbing unsteadily into his car and driving off once again into the chilly night. At roughly the same time, seven miles south of Wilnsdorf, in the small country town of Heiger Seelbach, the elderly Erna Helfritz was struggling to get to sleep. Despite going to bed early, she'd so far only managed to doze on and off. She was finally drifting off to sleep when she became vaguely aware of the sound of a car drawing up outside her house. This was followed moments later by a flurry of bangs at her front door. Snapping awake, Helfritz, somewhat nervously, hauled herself out of bed and with some trepidation made her way to the front door as a man shouted out to her from behind it. Helfritz relaxed a little when she recognised the voice as that of Gunter Stoll. Helfritz had known Stoll all his life, having been a childhood friend of his mother. However, she soon became alarmed again when she listened closer to what Gunther was saying. Stoll sounded frightened and was begging to be let in, telling her that a horrible incident was about to occur. Helfritz was concerned about Stoll, but given that it was 1am, and how unhinged he sounded, she refused to open the door, telling him to go to his parents' place instead, which was only a few minutes' drive away. Much to her relief, Stoll stopped shouting and walked away. At 3am, just two hours after Stoll had turned up at Erna Helfritz's home, about 70 miles away to the north, the traffic was light on Autobahn A45 as the occasional car and commercial lorry zipped in and out of the small spots of light cast by the motorway lamps. Two drivers in the cab of a truck travelling south were listening to the radio as they approached exit 13, the off-ramp for the city of Hagen-Sud, when they spotted a pale-coloured Volkswagen Golf lying in a ditch by the side of the southbound carriageway that looked to be badly damaged. 
According to their statements later, there was a man in a light-coloured jacket there too, walking around the car, seemingly inspecting the inside of it. But as the lorry pulled up to the wreckage, the man vanished into the night. Having parked up, one of the lorry drivers hurried to a nearby emergency phone to call for an ambulance, while the other, after taking a few deep breaths to steady his nerves, cautiously approached the crashed car. As the truck driver drew closer to the smashed up vehicle, he could see that the front end of it was crushed inwards and its windscreen had been completely smashed. The back tailgate was up and the passenger side door was also hanging open. Just then his colleague returned to say an ambulance was on the way and so together they then peered inside the wrecked vehicle. There, lying crumpled over in the passenger seat was the badly battered and strangely, incomprehensibly, naked body of a man with thinning dark hair, a black moustache and goatee beard. Even though they were both untrained in emergency scene response, it was clear the naked man had severe injuries on several parts of his body. Much to their relief, he was still alive, but only just conscious and barely clinging on to life. As they waited for the ambulance to arrive, the two drivers tried to keep the man talking, comforting him as best they could. Did he remember what happened, they asked. Why wasn't he wearing any clothes? The man fought to find the words, then eventually, in a shaky and raspy voice, explained that four other men had been with him in the car before he'd crashed. The men had apparently beaten him up, before running away and leaving him there. When asked if he knew the men, the man said no, they were complete strangers. An ambulance arrived on the scene soon after, and emergency workers carefully extracted the naked man from the wreckage. It was, of course, Gunter Stoll. Sadly, though he was alive when he was taken away in the ambulance, he died en route to the hospital shortly after. With the circumstances of Stoll's death and his apparent crash being so odd, the police quickly decided to make the case a criminal investigation. The following day, the two truck drivers were questioned at the local police station having first been put into separate rooms to check if their stories tallied. Both drivers testified to having seen a man in a bright or white jacket walking around the crashed car as they arrived on the scene, but the man was gone by the time they parked up. Other witnesses who were driving that stretch of road at the same time also spoke of seeing someone they described as possibly a hitchhiker in a bright or white coat where Stoll's wrecked car was found. Curiously, some witnesses described the white coat as looking like a lab coat. 
There were also onlooker reports of a pickup truck near exit 13, heading towards Frankfurt, immediately after the vehicle crashed. However, this vehicle was never traced. As more and more facts were uncovered, it seemed the mystery only deepened. No evidence of the mysterious passengers Stoll claimed were with him, nor his missing clothes could be found, and there were no leads on the white-coated stranger spotted at the scene either. The official cause of death was pronounced as vehicular manslaughter, caused under suspicious circumstances. And then came Stoll's autopsy. Firstly, it showed somewhat unexpectedly that Stoll's injuries had not been sustained from inside his own car, but elsewhere, with the likely possibility that he'd been struck outside his vehicle by another car before somehow ending up back inside the Volkswagen. Police surmised that having somehow been run over, Stoll was then deliberately positioned in the passenger seat of his own car before it was then driven or pushed into the ditch where it was found. This again, according to the police, was most likely done to hide the evidence of how, where, and by whose hand he'd received his fatal injuries. In subsequent questioning, Stoll's distraught wife told the police that her husband had made some solo holiday trips to the Netherlands over the previous couple of years. The police's immediate suspicion was that Gunther had been involved with drug dealing, but further investigations failed to reveal anything incriminating. As the investigation wore on, police profiled around 1,200 potential suspects, but neither the identity of the man in the bright or white jacket or the four people that Stoll claimed were with him just before he died could be ascertained. As for the location of where he'd supposedly first been injured, that too remained elusive. As news of what became known as the Autobahn Riddle hit the press and gained notoriety in the West German media and beyond, a plethora of theories began to circulate around Stoll's death. With all the strange details, the fact that he'd spoken repeatedly about how he was in danger in the lead-up to the fatal incident began to seem less like paranoia and more like a distinct possibility then something new came to light. It was during further questioning by the police, while Stoll's wife detailed the extent of his ever-increasing paranoia, that she remembered the mysterious note he'd written the night of his death. Having thought nothing of it at the time, Stoll's wife had thrown the note away, but was adamant she could remember it vividly. On it was written the word Yoxi, she said, give or take the G being a six or not. The revelation of this mysterious code inevitably led to even more public speculation about the case. What on earth could it mean, people wondered, as all manner of theories were put forward. What if it didn't say Yoxi at all, but the O 
was in fact a zero, and the letter Z actually the number two, and if the third letter was indeed the number six, could it be a vehicle license plate, some wondered, the license plate of a car that had been following him, only to later run him over, perhaps? Others suggested the characters were linked to a Romanian radio station, the call sign of which was exactly Y06TZE. There are no mentions of what the police made of the license plate theory, but any connection between the note and the Romanian radio station were found to have been merely coincidental. With police soon hitting a dead end with it all, cryptographers were brought in to analyse the mysterious characters. They too hit a dead end. In the years since Gunter Stoll's beguiling death, many more theories have been put forward to try and make sense of it. Since Stoll was a food engineer, some amateur sleuths have speculated that the letters Y-O-G-T-Z-E are an anagram for the word zygote, the scientific term for the earliest developmental stage of a fertilised egg, and that Stoll had unwittingly discovered evidence of some sort of secret genetic engineering experiment. Was the man in the white coat seen leaving the crash site, according to some, a scientist from a research laboratory? Or perhaps, rather than being an unwitting innocent, said others, was Stoll actually an active agent, deeply entangled within the clandestine world of industrial espionage, working for the East German government. Perhaps in his capacity as a food engineer, Stoll had been privy to some secret food ingredient or food modification program, knowledge which he was trying to smuggle out to the other side. What if the first three letters, Y-O-G, referred to yoghurt, thought some, although in German this would be spelt with a J or Jot as it is called, and not a Y. Those following this line of thought contend that the letters TZE might also denote a type of secret flavouring found in yoghurt that Stoll was working with. These might seem fanciful ideas to think it now, but throughout the Cold War, including well into the 1980s, the East German government had a highly developed industrial espionage programme At the time of Stoll's death, there were thought to have been thousands of operatives in West Germany engaged exclusively in industrial espionage for the East. Such spying was an attractive option to some West Germans struggling with their finances. Hans Rader was one prominent example. A physicist and former member of the National German Socialist Workers' Party, Rader was deep in debt and struggling to provide for his family when he was recruited by the East German government during the 1950s. An employee at a West German electronics firm, Raider's work put him in contact with detailed information about a range of technologies the company was developing. In exchange for monthly payoffs, Raider stole key files from his employer and passed them on to East German agents. Between 1957 to 1985, 
Raiders' side hustle spying career delivered staggering amounts of material into the hands of the Stasi, and he was never caught. It all certainly paints Stoll's strange behaviour in the lead-up to his death in a slightly more complicated light. Or did Gunter Stoll simply suffer a psychotic breakdown caused by the increasing mental stress and depression of unemployment? In the end, with it being close to 40 years since Stoll's death, it's unlikely we'll ever learn the truth of what exactly happened to him. Even the cryptic message, often touted as the only solid clue from the case, was in fact delivered second-hand from his wife's memory, something routinely found to be fallible. Every year, the case is re-examined by the Attorney General's office in the hopes of finally solving the mystery, and as it resurfaces in turn in the German public imagination, the amateur sleuths take another stab at finally cracking the case, but it remains to this day unexplained. This episode was written by Diane Hope. Unexplained is an AV Club Productions podcast created by Richard McLean Smith. All other elements of the podcast, including the music, are also produced by Richard McLean Smith. Unexplained the book and audiobook, featuring stories that have never before been featured on the show, is now available to buy worldwide. You can purchase from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Waterstones, among other bookstores. Please subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to podcasts, and feel free to get in touch with any thoughts or ideas regarding the stories you've heard on the show. Perhaps you have an explanation of your own you'd like to share. You can reach us online at unexplainedpodcast.com or Twitter at unexplainedpod and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash unexplainedpodcast. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there.